0: Welcome to this episode of the Being Well podcast, I'm Jan Orman. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is part of a series based on the webinars we present in the Black Dog Institute's eMental Health in Practice project. Webinar 37 was about the identification and management of obsessive compulsive disorder, with special reference to some of the evidence-based Australian online resources available to support patient care. My subject matter expert was Dr Bethany Wushan, a Senior Lecturer in Psychology at the University of Technology in Sydney, whose research interest in the development and evaluation of internet-based treatment for OCD led her to develop the MindSpot Clinic's OCD treatment program. Also on the panel were Dr. Janine Clark, a clinical psychologist in private practice who was involved in the development of Black Dog Institute's My Compass online treatment program, and Dr. Sarah Weaver, a Sydney GP with a special interest in mental health. To set the scene, I asked Bethany to review some of the important things about the nature and prevalence of the disorder.
1: So uh, OCD is a fairly common disorder in Australia, affecting about one in 50 people. It's characterised by the presence of obsessions and compulsions. And obsessions are um, unwanted uh, thoughts, images or urges that make people feel uh, very anxious or distressed. And compulsive behaviours are the things that the person does to try and alleviate that distress. So they can be um, overt behaviours such as washing or checking, uh, or they can be covert mental behaviours, um, which serve the same purpose as as the more obvious um compulsive behaviours. Um, so that relationship between obsessions and compulsions is really important in particular for um, treating OCD using uh, exposure and response prevention. So OCD is currently classified as an obsessive compulsive and related disorder in DSM-5. Um, so with um, DSM-5, they've, they've moved away from the anxiety disorders, although OCD does have a very strong anxiety component.
0: Can you just go back for a second to covert mental behaviours? What do you mean?
1: So um, sometimes people might, um, so for instance, if they have an unpleasant image enter their mind, they might try and replace it with a better image. So if I have a thought of harming someone, I might try and replace it with an image of me doing something nice for that person. Or I might be mentally kind of reassuring myself over and over that, or what I think is going to happen, isn't going to happen. Um, So that that there's any number of um, different kind of mental compulsions that people can do.
0: Do silent counting and silent affirmations come into this category of things as well? Absolutely, yeah. So it strikes me that these are are some of the behaviours, if you like, that you may well miss when you're trying to assess someone with OCD. Absolutely,
1: and there are these four main clinical presentations. So, uh, most of the time, when when a patient presents with OCD, they fall into one of these subtypes. Um, so, the first is contamination obsessions with washing and cleaning compulsions. Um, so, these people are concerned um, generally about um, germs and contamination. Uh, the second is harming obsessions with checking compulsions. Um, so, these people might be concerned about. Um, um fire or burglary or theft, or they might be um, concerned about harming someone potentially in their car um, when they're driving. Uh, and they do a lot of checking behaviours to try and reduce their anxiety. The third uh, presentation is the inappropriate thoughts and mental or repeating compulsions. So we just talk through some examples of what those mental compulsions might look like. Um, and the people, the, the sorts of concerns they might have is um, they might have concerns about um, uh, harming something or doing something embarrassing, or um, they might have concerns about um, being a pedophile or, or being gay. Um, and they do a lot of mental compulsions in, in response to that. Mm-hmm. And the final category is ordering and arranging obsessions and compulsions. So it's probably important to highlight that hoarding is no longer considered a subtype of OCD, um, whereas previously it had been considered uh, part of it.
0: Because it's treated differently?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of research that shows that um, the presentation is, is very different. It doesn't have that kind of um, uh, upward uh, anxiety-provoking obsession and... Um, anxiety reducing compulsive kind of link as the others do and it doesn't respond to exposure and response prevention as the other subtypes do. Um, so I'm a very strong believer in a, in a very thorough assessment. So the first example I've got here is the diagnostic interview for anxiety, mood, obsessive compulsive and related neuropsychiatric disorders um, or diamond for short. So it's a structured clinical interview that guides clinicians step by step through the diagnostic criteria for OCD and other co- Uh, common comorbid uh, conditions. And it's really helpful for clinicians to try and figure out, is this OCD that I, uh, I have presented in front of me or is it a related disorder or something different?
0: In the resources sheet that comes with this webinar, um, there's a link to that particular diagnostic assessment tool. Um, And Sarah followed that link and had a look at the diagnostic assessment tool. And I have to ask Sarah how she feels about using that particular tool in a general practice setting.
2: I was just a little overwhelmed because I thought that it is a fairly complex, uh, well, and it's long, um, and I think that very few GPs would have time to administer that assessment tool. And the other thing about it is that you do have to uh, register and pay some money and be guided in how to use the tool.
1: It is used in research, um, but also clinically as well. Um, a structured diagnostic interview. Um, would be a, as part of an evidence-based assessment um, for any mental health problem.
0: Mm-hmm. What else is there?
1: Um, so the next one is the gold standard outcome measure. So it's the Yale Brown obsessive compulsive scale. So um, any treatment outcome study will probably use this measure as an outcome. Uh, It assesses severity of uh, obsessions and compulsions regardless of the symptom presentation, uh, which is an advantage sometimes, and also provides clinicians with a checklist um, to assess common obsessions and compulsions, so it can help clinicians try and identify if it is an OCD presentation that they have in front of them. The disadvantage is that it can be quite lengthy uh, to complete in a clinician-administered way. Uh, There is a self-report version as well. Um, so it's a ten-item measure. The, the, the downside of it is uh, is that people who present with obsessive-type um, symptoms that are part of a different disorder to OCD can also score quite highly on that measure. Um, so it's a it's a good severity measure once you know the person has OCD, but it's not very helpful in uh, identifying cases of OCD from other conditions. The, the other two um, self-report scales there, the obsessive compulsive inventory revised and the dimensional obsessive compulsive scale can help clinicians to try and identify if it is an OCD case that they have um, in front of them. So the obsessive compulsive inventory originally had 18 items. It's now 15 items. Uh, it had three uh, items related to hoarding, uh, which can be removed. And the uh, final one, which is my preferred option, is the Dimensional Obsessive-Compulsive Scale. So it's a 20-item measure looking at the four subtypes of OCD with five items for
3: each subtype.
0: Janine, do you find any of these useful in your clinical practice?
3: Uh, Yes, Jan, I do. I must admit whilst whilst I do value, obviously, um, good clinical diagnosis, um, some of the, the lengthier Uh, Scales, I don't find particularly helpful, but um, keeping in mind that really what I'm always trying to do is just monitor symptoms. I I really love the self-report inventories and I do use um, the OCI revised um, and find them really quite useful. They've been demonstrated to be sensitive to changes in people's presentation and their functioning. And so I go for for the self-report measures myself. So
0: I can see all the GPs reeling here because yes. what what we need to do is differentiate OCGD from other disorders. And Sarah suggested that maybe some simple questions might be useful for GPs to use. Sarah, run us through these um, questions, will you, and why you might want to ask them?
2: well i think that if you've done some good questioning even if you haven't got an absolute diagnosis of obsession and compulsion if you can see these obsessive and compulsive behaviours and then have a think does this fit with the patient's general mood and personality so is it are the sort of things go along with where they're at at that moment so are they mood congruent and then so maybe it might be part of a depression rather than actually um, an OCD separate Um, also what are the sort of things that they're anxious about the anxious thoughts are they real life concerns maybe a bit exaggerated and then maybe that that's a a generalized anxiety disorder and then people with these sort of Um, thoughts about things that may be a bit out of out a bit wacky in a way um do they realize that these are a bit wacky do they have a sense of, of of recognizing that these are perhaps not reality-based, they may not do that all the time. If they haven't got that sort of recognition, I think I'd be considering and, and investigating further for a psychotic sort of dis-
0: disorder. Let's talk about treatment. Tell us what you know, Bethany.
1: Um, so the dominant model uh, highlights the OCD is maintained by three um, three things. The first is misinterpreting intrusions. So often people will, um, so if I have an intrusive thought um, that's unpleasant, I might think that that means something negative about me or that I'm likely to do that behaviour or that it's likely to come true. Um, the second um, unhelpful thing that um, maintains OCD is the neutralising behaviours, which are the compulsions, uh, and escape behaviours. So we've talked about those mental rituals um, that maintain the problem, but also the, the more overt behaviours such as washing and checking and the ordering and arranging maintain the problem and keep it going.
0: Um, I do, why do they maintain the problem, Bethany? Is it is it like avoidance?
1: it it, it's like um well it is like avoidance so it's unhelpful in the same way that avoidance is and it's reinforcing so when I do a compulsion it it eliminates my anxiety so in the short term it reinforces um that compulsions Mm -hmm. can be helpful but in the long term it means that I need to keep doing these Mm -hmm. um behaviors so Cognitive behaviour therapy addresses those maintaining factors um, through exposure and response prevention. Yeah, so ERP, um, best practice ERP according to Edna EDNAFOA, um, consists of four components. So exposure to the fear uh, stimuli in vivo, so in real life. So if I have concerns about contamination, then I'm going to be touching um, progressively more difficult things um, for me to uh, induce my concerns. Um, the second thing is the uh, exposure to feared stimuli in imagination. So, if again, if I have concerns about contamination, then I might imagine myself uh, getting sick from a variety of different illnesses that I'm concerned about catching. The third part and really important part is response prevention, so, ceasing the compulsive behaviours. And the fourth part is the processing component, where the patient is asked to consider what they've learned from the exposure task. Um, is what they thought going to happen? Did it actually happen? And how, how difficult was it? Um, so C- see, CBT is a very effective treatment, um, but unfortunately it is rarely delivered in practice. One of the reasons for that is that often clinicians don't have enough time under a mental health care plan um, to, to do that treatment thoroughly. Um, often in the research you'll see people um, getting treatment for up to 20 sessions or so. Um also ERP is often delivered best when it's delivered multiple times per week, um, which again doesn't always um suit clinicians. Um but there is a an issue with lack of training as well. Um some people might not feel confident in delivering the treatment and others feel that um they don't like to do it because it, it induces distress in mm-hmm. the client. Um, There's other pr- practical barriers as well. So, often to do ERP well, you need to leave the office with the client to do their exposure tasks. And it doesn't really fit well into a 50 minute therapeutic hour that an allied health professional often has.
0: Mm-hmm. For me, the biggest, least uh, overcomeable issue there that you've mentioned is that business about making the patient feel worse because you've certainly got to make them feel worse in order to get them better and there's not many things that we do where that's what we have to do Um, and that's not really why our nature is it as mental health professionals to want to do that. Before we go on to internet-delivered treatment, we need to talk about what might alert GPs to the possibility that someone has OCD Not many people are going to come in and say I've got OCD or give you some strong clues of that sort. And I think there might be some hidden presentations that we don't actually um, think are mental health consultations but turn out to be. Sarah, have you ever seen any presentations of that sort? Look,
2: yes. um, Possibly I've even missed some. Mm -hmm. Um, But I guess one of the most common ones is people with dermatitis in their hands um, and they'll come in and you'll try all your treatments for dermatitis and then eventually you tend think to ask the right question or they volunteer that they have to keep washing their hands because of fears of contamination. So I think that one's quite a common one. Um, I think also I've got, I've had a few patients who um probably I'm dealing with in a mental health way but they're talking about some difficulties with work that they're having some missed days or um, that they're continually running late for work Um, and when you actually do some more discussing of it with them it's because they have to go back and check that the door's locked too many times um, various checking sort of behaviours and I was also thinking of somebody who got very anxious about things being lined up on their desk and if people made a mess of the things on their desk sort of so distress about those sorts of things.
0: I've had one or two people straighten the things out on my desk while I'm talking to them, which is a bit disconcerting, but I have to admit there are lots of things on my desk that need straightening out, so it's possible (laughs) that it's not necessarily pathological. (laughs) But I mean, they're the kinds of clues, I think, that you need to look for in order to raise awareness of this possibility. It's not always going to be the case, but it's worth thinking about.
2: I've actually found it's been quite often that it's been a a certain way down my dealings with the patient before it becomes evident that this is what the issue is.
0: Absolutely. It's it's a late admission or a late diagnosis, isn't it, it? amongst a whole lot of other things usually. I asked Bethany to tell us something about internet-delivered treatment for OCD, which she refers to as ICBT.
1: So ICBT uh, can be delivered as either a low-intensity treatment or a high-intensity treatment, and I'll talk about both. Um, And and ICBT is really important because it helps people with OCD overcome barriers to accessing treatment um, and enhances access to evidence-based treatment. The treatment I'll be talking about today is one that I've um, developed uh, through the eCenter Clinic, which is now disseminated through MindSpot. Um, So low-intensity CBT uses carefully crafted self-help materials to deliver the evidence-based treatment. Um, So a lot of research has gone into how to best um, deliver these interventions for people and for how to people to get the most out of them so these particular low intensity treatments can be delivered in either a guided or self-guided way guided treatments involve asynchronous contact with a clinician and generally that equates to about five to ten minutes of clinician time um, once a week as the client progresses through treatment sometimes twice a week I've, I've done that in the past as well Self-guided treatments um, mean that people work their way through the treatment materials without any um, clinician guidance. So an important part of a good ICBD program is that it has a secure login that lessons are released according to a strict timeline. So a client can't just log in and access all of the information at once. They need to really process the information, practice the skill related to that module before moving on to subsequent modules. Before entering the treatment, it's really important that the patient is assessed for OCD symptoms because often um, people will think they have OCD when they don't and the the treatment won't be helpful for them. Um, The other really important part of a good ICBT program is that it has regular prompts and reminders that are delivered to the patient through the system.
0: So these are important things for us to look at if we're looking to see if it's a good program, as well as the evidence to support the use of that program. So
1: our team at the e Clinic has now conducted six clinical trials. We're working on our seventh at the moment, investigating low-intensity ICBT for OCD. So we know that the treatment works and the uh, research we're currently doing is looking at who responds best to that kind of treatment.
0: Bethany went on to describe in detail the components of the MindSpot OCD program.
1: It's a five-lesson program that's delivered over eight weeks. Um, the first lesson, patients get one week to complete, and it provides psycho-ed on the nature of OCD and how it's treated. Introduces participants to the OCD model and also introduces participants to three case examples who, throughout the program, demonstrate how they've used the skills to uh, address their symptoms. So, lesson two uh, patients have two weeks to complete this lesson, um, and that includes practicing the homework tasks that are associated with it. So, in this lesson, um, they're looking at the cognitive component of OCD and introduces patients to cognitive distortions or thinking traps, as we call them, and um, asks patients to use behavioural experiments to address those distortions. Lesson three, again, our patients have two weeks to complete. And in this lesson, participants are provided with education on compulsive behaviours and why they're unhelpful and introduces exposure and response prevention. So uh, participants are asked to construct their hierarchy and get started working on it in that particular lesson. Um, So lesson four uh, provides information on common comorbidities and how to address these. And in this lesson, we focus on depressive symptoms and anxiety symptoms and clients have one week to complete that lesson. Uh, In lesson five, uh, clients have two weeks to complete this and it focuses on um, relapse prevention so educating clients about lapses and how to try and avoid a relapse of their symptoms Um, and really emphasizes combining all of the skills throughout the program uh, to address their symptoms.
0: Ethony added that as people work their way through the program, they can download their homework sheets, as well as summaries of the lessons, which gives them the opportunity to review the material when they're offline. So that's low-intensity ICBT for OCD, specifically the MindSpot Virtual Clinic Program. That program is available free, with or without guidance from the MindSpot Clinic. And just so there's no confusion, high-intensity ICBT does not involve the use of these programs. The term refers to -to face-to-face-style CBT delivery via the internet, which you may know as telepsychology.
1: So the take-home messages are that CBT is very effective for OCD, but it's really important that that CBT contains exposure and response prevention as the primary component. Um, So, we know that both low-intensity and high-intensity ICBT is effective for OCD, um, but patients may prefer one type of approach over the other, so it's important to ask patients about their preferences. Um, And it's it's really important um, for all clinicians, in my opinion, to regularly assess their clients um, with validated and widely used assessment tools just to keep a track of their, their symptoms.
0: In the webinar, we talked about Jessica, a young woman in her final year of high school, who presented to her GP asking for help with her anxiety. Because the GP asked some specific questions about that anxiety, we discovered that it wasn't just her Year 12 exams that were worrying her. Year 12 had definitely made things worse, but Jessica had experienced anxiety symptoms for some years. Further questioning revealed considerable concern about contamination and lots of avoidance behaviours. The docs questionnaire that Jessica completed revealed issues in other domains as well, which was helpful in assessing her level of distress. Jess refused to see a psychologist on the grounds that she was too busy studying, had no money, and anyway, talking about her problems to a stranger would just be so embarrassing. Instead, she agreed to look at the MindSpot OCD program.
1: So Dr A made uh, an assertive follow-up appointment with Jessica in six weeks' time. And at that appointment, inquired about the use of the MindSpot program and how it was going, but also readministered the docs to assess her symptoms to see whether there'd been any changes.
0: Okay. So Dr A has seen her, referred her, and seen her again after six weeks at the end of the program. Sarah, can I ask you, is that what you would have done? Um. I would, I, I would prefer to
2: see Jessica much more frequently than that, perhaps every two weeks um, to follow through. And I was just thinking about it and thinking if she had chosen the self-guided option, um, I would be even more uh, wanting to, to get her to come and talk to me in in between times. Because um, I think patients and do have... Things that they get stuck on, or things that they're having trouble with, um, and give her a chance to to talk to me about about the thing, because she already knows that I've I've seen I know her and, and know about it. So hopefully it's not too embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and to pick up earlier if there are problems, so that we could actually sort of intervene or. Um, reinforce what's going on and help to try and get over roadblocks.
0: So Janine, I know you can do all this stuff yourself, but Is there a place for you as a psychologist to refer someone to a program such as this? And if so, how would you do it? How would you fit it in with the face-to-face therapy?
3: Well, I think there's possibly a couple of ways to do it, but um, one of the the benefits, I think, of programs like this is that they really provide a really valuable adjunct to the work that we do in face-to-face sessions, recognising that I might see a client for one hour a week. um, I am able then to refer them to a program such as this and they are able to take Use the program as they like, but all of the time, what we do in face-to-face therapy is being reinforced. They're getting greater practice. There's skill generalisation, um, and, and that's that's incredibly valuable. I guess the other way that I would go about using it is that often um, clients that present with OCD have other comorbid issues, depression um, being an example, but there are possibly other ones as well that I could be addressing a particular issue with a client in face-to-face whilst they are using the program to, to start working on, on another issue, recognising that I only have my clients for say 10, 10 sessions if that's all they're going to be able to, to afford. So there are a kind of, I guess, a couple of different ways that I would definitely think about, referring, about using the program.
0: I took the opportunity to also introduce another Australian-made ICBT program for OCD. That program comes from the Clinical Research Unit for Anxiety and Depression and is part of the This Way Up suite of programs. The This Way Up program is quite similar in content to the MindSpot program, but uses a cartoon-style presentation over its six lessons. The program costs just under $60. As with the MindSpot program, users can self-refer. But if, as a practitioner, you choose to formally prescribe the program, you can follow your patient's progress using the practitioner portal on the This Way Up website. I hope you've enjoyed this program and learned something that will enhance your clinical care. If you'd like to view the webinar in full, the recording is available on demand from the eMental Health in Practice page of the Black Dog Institute website. Thanks for joining me. I'll look forward to seeing you next time.